U.S. Federal Reserve raised rates half a point on Wednesday, as expected, and clarified that a three-quarter point rise was off the table. Markets responded positively to the news that rate increases wouldn't go above the half-point level, but then fell sharply on Thursday. This series of moves by the central bank directly targets inflation, but one central bank is resolute in its commitment to keeping interest rates low no matter what. Turkey, where year-over-year inflation neared 70% in April. Consumers the world over are impacted by high prices, economic uncertainty, and supply chain issues arising from the war in Ukraine, COVID in China, and other causes. In this edition of Commerce Code, directing traffic on the internet. A conversation with Farzad Rashidi of Respana. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. America's biggest digital advertising players saw stark slowdowns in their business as the pandemic wanes and people are less wedded to their phones, tablets, and computers. First quarter revenues still grew for the industry's three biggest players, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. But that growth was just over 20% for Google and Amazon and only 6% for Facebook. A year earlier, the same numbers were over 50%. Facebook's overall revenue growth was the slowest it ever posted since going public in 2012. Accordingly, Facebook parent group Meta announced a sharp slowdown in hiring this week. Meta has doubled its employee base since 2018. In other post-pandemic retail news, in its Wednesday earnings call, internet marketplace Etsy reported a slowdown in growth from the two explosive years of the pandemic, when sales more than doubled to $2.8 billion. The remainder of the year may see a reduction in gross sales at Etsy, according to the company. As online commerce cools and people return to bricks-and-mortar stores, in-person sales have predictably risen. In-store sales were up 10% this April compared to last, while online volume dropped 1.8%, according to the latest edition of MasterCard's Spending Pulse report. As we turn to today's interview, a few factoids. Google has about 92% of the internet search market in countries where Google is accessible. How much is that in practice? Well, it's 8.5 billion searches a day. That's a little over one search every day for every living person in the world probably closer to two searches per day for the people who can get access to Google since it's not available in China and a handful of other places. Now, how did I find out all this stuff? I Googled it. So there's a lot of internet traffic, and the world of digital commerce depends on that internet traffic for just about everyone in this space. At some point, it matters how and how fast people can find your website through a Google search. Today on the show, we'll learn more about driving internet traffic to your website by speaking with Farzad Rashidi, the co-founder of Respana. Farzad, thank you so much for joining us today on Commerce Code. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I want to just dive in and, and ask you if, if you could tell our listeners just a bit about what Respana does and kind of your overall mission. Respana, to put it simply, is a platform that allows online businesses, anybody that does content marketing for their business, to gain quality backlinks from relevant authoritative publications in their space with hopes of obviously improving their Google rankings and increasing their organic traffic. Farzad, we've got some terms in this conversation that I think are important for people to know. And I'm thinking about three right now that I know are going to come up. One of them is an acronym, it's SEO. Another one is organic traffic that's important to this conversation. And I'm going to add a third one, which is backlinks. When your customers would potentially want to look for a service that you offer, 
Well, normally what they do is to go ahead and Google. And what, what you normally do is to skip the first five or six results that are normally advertisements from Google. And you jump straight to what see what's actually ranking organically in the top 10 search results. And the process of SEO is basically identifying what are some of these key terms that your business needs to rank for in order to show up in places where your customers are looking for a product or service like yours. And you position yourself to show up in those places versus having to chase after every customer to obtain these, which is exponentially more expensive. And organic traffic is basically, if you own a website and your website is already ranking for some of these key terms without having to spend money in advertising, that's what we call organic traffic. And backlinks are the most important factor for Google to decide which one of these web pages they need to rank higher. And it's somewhat of a, I would say, popularity contest in eyes of Google. And the more other relevant authoritative publications and resources in your space are talking about you, and if you've seen some of those hyperlinks within those content pieces that are actually actively referencing your website, that is what I refer to in terms of backlinks. When publishers and thinking about like segments of the business that the Digital Commerce Alliance folks are familiar with, if publishers are increasing their organic traffic, from your experience, how quickly do they typically see positive changes in their business as a result of the increase in organic traffic? Depending on the industry that you're in and the keywords you're trying to target, it gets increasingly more difficult versus some of the more uh, less competitive industries where a lot of companies haven't really tapped into the organic keywords and haven't really learned much about content marketing yet. So that, that opens up a lot of opportunities where you don't normally compete with a whole lot of bigger companies and corporations that are already producing a ton of content. In terms of getting results from SEO, it is somewhat of an initiative that you get what you put into it. So we sort of have a process for identifying exactly what to do in terms of identifying what I call these opportunity keywords for your business if SEO is the right acquisition channel. And then you sort of take it from there. And the amount of time it will take is completely reliant on the resources that you're dedicating to that initiative and also at the same time, how competitive your industry is. Can you talk a little bit about what backlinks are and why they're valuable? You said earlier when we were defining terms that search engine optimization is really in part about getting backlinks in place, et cetera. But I'd love to have you unpack that a bit more. So over time, as more companies are going online and tapping into content marketing and publishing web pages, it's becoming increasingly more difficult for Google in order to rank these because how would you go about indexing these web pages? Because 99% of those clicks are going to happen on the first page of Google. So if you're putting yourself in shoes of Google, obviously, you got to have some sort of metric that you could basically objectively decide which one of these web pages bear more authority. And that's where really backlinks come in. So the way they work and function is basically by a popularity contest. So the more authoritative publications that are relevant to your space are talking about you, that is an indication to Google and these other search engines that, hey, these guys must be authoritative and credible because other people are talking about them. Similar concept to how academic research articles are valued by how many times they get cited by other scientists. And that's why these backlinks have been a ranking factor, one of the most important ones since the past 20 some years so backlinks are kind of the key it's not that easy to get because it's not completely under your control you sort of need to get other people to do it i know you have a point of view on how to earn editorial backlinks so how do you go about doing that 
So before you start promotion and spending resources on link building, what you want to do is to first build the right foundation for your website. And, and there is a process of identifying the right keywords, understand what the user intent is for that keyword. And then you create a corresponding piece of content that could be a landing page, it could be a blog article. Now, once that's done and you put it up there, there is a process what our team follows in order to gain some of these backlinks and editorial mentions by other publications. And that normally starts from a transactional collaboration. So you normally identify the right websites to reach out to, try and identify some non-competing pieces of articles that happen to mention our target keyword somewhere in the body. And then what you want to do is to reach out to somebody who's in charge of the content and marketing and basically incentivize them to work with you on a mutually beneficial way. Normally stuff from a collaboration where you get your foot in the door. And that normally evolves into a content collaboration after where you're publishing a piece of content as a guest contributor on another publication. And the third step is building partnerships with relevant sites in your space who also contribute articles to other publications in their space. And over time, once you build that network of partners, then you're cross-referencing each other. And that sort of creates a ripple effect of incoming links for your website. There's an essential reciprocity to this that makes total sense, which is that you're out there creating content, someone's out there creating content, wanting to get links to it, and you're essentially proposing reciprocal links in a way, maybe not quite directly, but in a way that's beneficial to everybody and frankly makes it easier for folks to find your stuff. Is that roughly right? Well, yes, that's step one. And that's normally where you would like to have your foot in the door and putting these seeds in the ground and open up conversations by providing value to publications that are in your space. But then over time, you would like to kind of evolve that relationship over time because, first of all, you are limited by a number of publications that are actually relevant to you. So you want to make sure you don't go out and start spamming the world and <laughs> basically burning bridges. So it's important to kind of take a personalized approach and make sure that anything that you offer them is mutual. The beneficial. So at Respana, I think you've got something of a personalization of strategy or approach. How do you incorporate that into what you do? So the personalization aspect is sort of, I mean, people are sick and tired of getting these spam emails and you get these every day. We, I personally get about a hundred emails a day. And over time you can see what's an automated email and whatnot. So the process of actually spending some time to do proper research and find specific publications that are actually relevant and not just contacting anybody. And also at the same time, referencing something that I've talked about in an article, implying that, hey, we've actually sat down and read your article. This is not just another spamming average email. And more importantly, the incentive and what's in it for them. So Respond in particular basically brings the whole process of, okay, identifying what publications we need to reach out to, who is the right person, what's their contact info, the best way to contact them, okay? And then once you want to send them an email, how do I personalize the pitch, give you some snippets to work with, and also automate the follow-ups because 65% of our replies come after the first follow-up. So that whole process is sort of streamlined under one roof because it gets quite tedious over time if you like to do that manually. But that is something I actually would recommend a lot of folks who are listening, that if this is not an initiative that you're actively pursuing, there's no need to pay for all these tools from the get-go. I actually would recommend to have your team start experimenting with these manually up to a certain point that it becomes hard to scale. Then it becomes no-brainer to use a software like Respondent to sort of streamline and scale. As I'm wrapping my head around all of this, you have started to make sense in my mind of something that has been cloudy for a long time. So I'm thankful for that. And I wonder if you can just share kind of a case study or an example of how this has worked in practice. 
So VizMe is a sort of all-in-one tool for businesses to create visual content. And I joined the company when it was a tiny little startup. And we grew the traffic now to about two and a half million, three million per month from Google. And that's worth about one and a half million dollars worth of paid ads or AdWords that we're getting for free, quote unquote. Obviously, it's not free because we are spending some resources on content creation and whatnot. And that's something that sparked the idea of Responder because the process average for us, we spend 20% of our marketing resources on content creation and the other 80% goes into content promotion and building these relationships and backlinks with these specific publications that are in our space. But to be completely transparent with you, Dan, a lot of these case studies, we don't really take much credit for because all Responder does is just to save you time and help you scale by automating the mundane tasks so you can focus more on personalization. I always describe it as a knife. You still need a chef to make food. So what we do is to kind of save time. But I would say that the promise of the tools is sort of baked into the story of the creation of the company that we didn't just wake up one day and come up with it. This was something that was actually built out of our own need. That's great. And as I said, such a helpful way of understanding something that I think a lot of people find hard to penetrate and hard to understand. And so I'm grateful for you joining us today on Commerce Code and helping us to unravel this. We hope to continue this conversation in the future and wish you all the best with your work. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Dan. It was was a pleasure. Thanks, Farzad. Coming right up, closing thoughts on the global internet. There have been a few reasons for folks to be talking about the global internet these days. Some of it is our shift away from the pandemic, at least in many parts of the world. We used the internet more and differently when COVID was at its height. But some, too, has been about the internet and Russia, as the world moves increasingly against Russia and Russia circles the wagons, not just in terms of the physical economy, but its information economy. It's a fair bet that the Kremlin would like to have more control over Russians' information consumption than they currently do. The typical Russian has pretty good access to global news sources, more or less unfiltered. The model some have suggested Russia will want to follow is that of China. When asked if China could censor the internet, Bill Clinton famously quipped that they could go ahead and try. It would be like trying to nail jello to the wall. The comment was famous at the time because it seemed like a vivid and a very Bill Clinton way of conveying something that was surely true. Fast forward to about 2015, and the jello was well and truly nailed to the wall. It turns out that if you put the jello in a bag, and then nail the bag to the wall? It works pretty well. It's a little more complicated than that, and that's why Russia won't be able to accomplish anything like it very soon, or possibly ever. China has not only very sophisticated sets of controls on state-monitored search engines and platforms like WeChat that are both centrally managed and nearly exclusive, but also a small army of government employees who actively patrol and participate in internet conversations. All of that combined has resulted in a very active Mandarin and Cantonese internet, that's also pretty well contained from the government's perspective. But since we were talking in the introduction and in the main conversation today, as if Google and the Western internet were the only game in town, I wanted to balance that a little bit with some data as a reminder that there's another very big game going on every day. Baidu is China's Google, you could say, and 94% of Baidu's users are in China. Baidu's revenues are big, 16 billion in 2020, though admittedly, Google is still a lot bigger at 180 billion in the same year. Baidu has pretty limited users outside of China, since its search results only show things, well, mostly inside China's Great Firewall. WeChat is by far China's most popular app. In fact, it's the world's biggest app and most relevant to digital commerce. WeChat has no direct parallel in the West, as it integrates social media, messaging, entertainment, and digital payments platforms in a single app. 
This is a little bit oversimplified, but it's like having Facebook, WhatsApp, Amazon, and PayPal all on one app. WeChat has 900 million daily users. That's about three times the size of the United States, 150 million of whom are outside of China, 19 million of whom are in the U.S. Most users are using it in Mandarin, but there are multiple language options, including English. WeChat's payment platform competes with Alipay, but in 2019 surpassed Alipay in payments volume. Obviously, these data points only scratch the surface, but I don't think we can talk about internet commerce and internet traffic without noting the colossal role China plays in the total picture. Now that the Chinese internet has developed to such a mature level inside the Great Firewall, people are assuming the future involves a splinter net where China, maybe Russia, the West, perhaps other societies or cultures too, will create their own walled gardens within which communication and commerce take place. I've got no prognostications as to how and how fast that happens, but whatever happens, we'll write the rules of the digital commerce game for the middle of the 21st century. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website, www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other. God bless. This is Dan Carell, signing off.